The Multiverse Podcast presents The Crushing Fist, Chapter 5. Written by Matt Demersky, produced by Eunice Randall, and narrated by Raphael Marmel. If you guys ever read these emails, you'll of course be aware I didn't die there in the flames and ashes, but it was the roughest trial of my life. A hazy blur scattered and arced across my awareness for quite some time. I thought that I had died out there. Brief flashes of coherency made me confused and hopeful. Was there existence after death? Was I on my way there? I felt heat at times, and a chill at others. Sometimes I was at peace, and sometimes I was fighting hard through horrific pain. Was I careening between heaven and hell, waiting to tip into one or the other based on the life experiences bubbling up and draining repeatedly through my thoughts? Through it all, I felt her there. She's always there, even though I'd abandoned her all those years ago. Consciousness came back in a single abrupt strike to my forehead. I blinked, imagining electricity still arcing through my brain from the thud of awaking. First thing I noticed was the heat, and then the fact that I was sitting chest high in a pool of blood. Part of me was sure I'd ended up in the wrong side of the afterlife divide, but I wasn't afraid. If that was true, it just meant one more fight, and one more journey. I would claw and bite my way through the forces of hell if I had to and then start walking, intent on finding wherever Christina had gone. I'd found something in that stand against the sword, and I was never going to abandon her again. I promised existence itself that much. I tried to get up from the thick crimson liquid, but my limbs were weak. Shakily forcing my way up, I stood, and felt a heavy draining sensation in my lower back and thighs. Wait, a voice I thought I'd never hear again said sharply. Don't get up. We took a severe amount of shrapnel out of you, and you're basically Swiss cheese down there. I fell roughly back into the pool of blood. The ground around was comprised of mostly flat volcanic rock, and a heavy tent arced above, keeping us protected from the elements. I could see that it had been constructed from parachutes, meaning I was still in Tesco's prison reality. What is this stuff? I asked feebly, trying to locate the speaker. I needed to see her face. Behind me, I heard her stand. It's a cohesive, non-sentient scavenger. It scoots across the ground, hides in crevices, and comes out to drain the blood of sleeping or dead creatures, in order to add to its mass. I held my arms out of the crimson fluid, stunned. Why am I in it? Your circulatory system is a part of it at the moment. It's pumping through you, in and out of your open wounds. I shuddered. Is it compatible? The blood type? she asked. Hell if I know. But if we figured it had to normalize its internal system somehow... Probably strips antigens and pathogens. And you're alive, so there's some empirical evidence. Suddenly remembering my injuries, I prompted motion in my broken leg, and found it bound extremely tightly by something unseen under the red. Was I actually going to live? I'd written myself off. But there was another question. More burning. Christina? She came slowly around the pool and sat cross-legged next to the red. Those light brown eyes watched me with compassion, and a thousand other deeply hidden emotions. She'd always been one to hide what was going on inside, and the years haven't changed that. But my heart leapt in my chest, pumping that strange liquid creature's blood through me. Vasiliev Blaku said he killed you. She lowered her eyes for a moment, and I thought I sensed a deep pain and loneliness in her face. The mask came back a split second later, and she looked to the side. While I survived, standing she picked up some random equipment from a stack nearby and began fiddling with it. To anyone else, she would have seemed intent and busy but I could tell there was really a storm going on inside her. I'm sorry. You're sorry? She asked, not looking at me. For what? For leaving. It was a mistake. 
and I've regretted it ever since. Well, I survived that too, she said roughly, immediately moving toward the tent's exit. Just short of it, she stopped, bent down, and kissed me on the forehead. Then she was gone, and I was left alone to peer after her, my pulse racing and my emotions in turmoil. How had she survived? What wasn't she telling me? And where was I, exactly? Was there some safe tent in the vile thousand-year pit of scum and evil? And wait, there was so much I had to tell her. I'd been sent to rescue a woman of exactly her description. I hadn't thought anything of it at the time, because it couldn't possibly have been her. But it was. And it made sense, too. Because she had always gone headlong into the heart of danger, intent on doing what was needed. Because that was who she was. Or who she had been, at least, before our daughter had died. After that, I had no idea what had happened to her. If she hadn't died in the sand five years ago, where had she been all this time? What had she been doing? She would have never been able to find or contact me while I was in the first world, but I had no way to know if she would have even wanted to talk to me. Left alone with my thoughts, I had nothing to do but churn. Through it all, I kept one thing clear in my head. I was not going to abandon her this time. Nothing else mattered. Not the person she might have become, not anything she might have done. She was in Tescoy, so something had clearly gone awry in her life. But, wait. The chip. Hadn't I seen her activating it? I had too many questions, and no one to ask. All I could do was wait. Several hours later, a white-haired woman entered, wearing long brown rags and a tight cloth over her mouth and nose. Get up and lie flat on your stomach, she said calmly, indicating a bundle in her hands. Carefully and slowly, I clambered out onto rock, feeling much like a fish leaving the ocean for the first time. Quickly and expertly, the woman stabbed me repeatedly with a little needle, tying threads from the bundle into my flesh directly. She seemed to work for a very long time. Just how many pieces of shrapnel had punctured me? The painful stitches stung all over the back of my lower body. At long last, she made a noise of achievement, placed several large, squishy patches on my skin, and then had me lift up a few inches so that she could wrap thick brown bandages tightly around my midsection. You're not going to die, she cooed. From this, anyway. Make sure to take those jelly biters off before nightfall. It occurred to me that the large squishy patches might not actually be bandages. I could feel waves of little prodding feelers. I shuddered again, imagining some sort of flat amoeba-like creature giving me a thousand tiny little bites. Delete the bacteria and whatever shards of metal you still have in you, she said, standing and heading for the exit. Also, your ribs are bruised and we had to reinflate one of your lungs. Take it easy, son. Really? Wait, I asked. What's going on? Going on? She responded, eyes curious. Should I talk to somebody? Where are we exactly? We're in prison, dear. There's nobody to talk to, and there's nothing to do but exist. She slid out, and I was alone again. I was absolutely not going to sit around for a second stretch of hours. Forcing myself up on one shaky foot, and one solid light encased in a heavy black cast, I limped to the tent flaps. Oh yeah, I knew immediately I shouldn't have ever done that. The sky was pure black, a void that cut the eye, but it was not empty. Creatures floated among drifting ash clouds, weird huge bird things, a few balloon-like bags of gas with myriad drifting tentacles, and what looked like a ruby cube just floating there in the sky, a mile or two across on each side. As I looked at the distant vast red gemstone cube, it rotated, and I felt watched in return, somehow as distant and aloof as it was. 
It seemed to have sensed my observation. Hurriedly looking away, I hoped I hadn't attracted dangerous attention. What were the rules in a place like this? None at all, I imagined. And below, for we were very high up along a tremendous volcanic mountainside, valleys stretched away to the lava-lit horizon. The colors and shapes within each were terrifying and chaotic. Spectral forms moved among blue crystal mounds unique to a valley to my left. A great writhing beast rolled along the line of the horizon itself, and motion in the shadows between it and our mountain belied an endless number of unseen threats. Any one of those things could murder us all, Christina commented. Her arms folded as she sat on a metal crate right outside the tent. She hadn't gone far. But they don't care about us at all. We're nothing but ants in the distance. And that's the only reason we survive. Seems to be the way of things in this life, doesn't it? I limped over and sat down on the long, cooled lava rock next to her crate. I didn't have the strength to sit up on my own. And I didn't care if I received a negative reaction. It was the highlight of my life. And of the last decade, to see her alive again. Even if it was in existence's closest approximation of hell itself. I leaned my head against her leg. She hesitated, still fearful of being touched after all these years. But she reached down and ran a hand through my hair eventually settling it on my shoulders. She never had any words. That wasn't her way. I watched the distant valley for a time, just happy to sit there with her, before turning my eyes to the camp all around me. Several tents had been made out of parachutes and strung up in safe places among the rocks. Looking a bit up the mountainside, I could see two immense lava flows splitting above, creating a deadly moat around the makeshift haven these people had built. And the people did not seem to be the legendary scum and brutes I'd been told about. There was the old woman who had stitched me up. Past her, a tent with a Yantak art painted on it in black. The yellow skins that live within would never harm another without orders from the prelate, and there were no prelates to be found here. And beyond that tent lay an assortment of people sitting, crafting, and keeping a lookout. None bore the trademark shiftiness and suspicion of a criminal. These were just normal people living in a tiny safe bubble in the worst environment imaginable. In a way, it seemed analogous to our shield, and the way we'd tried to cut ourselves off from the multiverse. This was the tragedy of life. Nothing lasts forever. I tried your chip, she said suddenly, her eyes on the distant horizon as she continually and silently judged the path of the gigantic creature rolling by. A blue portal opened about an inch wide, but then shut again. I think the explosion of the facility up top pushed us deeper into the inner shield. Whoever sent you, they can't help us now. She looked over and down at me. That blue portal, who made it? A boy named Thomas, I responded. He's an awkward young man, but he's absolutely endearing somehow. And he's not human, so there's that. She nodded slowly for ten seconds straight, and then breathed a deep sigh of relief. So, he's alright. Is he in good hands? You know him, I asked. Yeah, he's got a ton of kids with him, and one of them, Danny, is kind of running the show. She actually gave a genuine laugh at that. Makes sense. I looked up. How do you know them all? They're my kids. Wait, what? I shot back alarmed. When did you... how... with who? No, no, she laughed again. Her inner chaos momentarily dispelled. Terrible things happened in their hometown, and I was trying to take care of them. Before all this. She paused significantly. I... care about them and I have to get back to them. Relieved, I gave my best feeble laugh through the pain in my chest. Well, they want to find you pretty badly. Sent us all on a rescue mission just for you. At least at first. Thomas's people were a secondary win. Wait, you found them, she asked, suddenly sharp. Where? Yeah, got all them out. 
They were up there in the facility. That brought all of her masks back down, and her eyes went distant as she began rapidly turning mental gears. I stared up at her. What is it? I could tell by her face that she wasn't used to divulging information, and might not have told me, but she decided otherwise. We need them. In mass, they helped grow the branches and build the shield about a thousand years ago. Back when the first world was just a budding power, and dead set on making alliances to survive, that meant, can they help us stop the crushing fist? Can they revitalize the shield? She stood abruptly. A single word fell flat and direct on my ears. Yes! A large man approached from across the camp. One way or another, she said softly. We're approaching the end of all of this. I just hope... She cut herself off as our privacy was disrupted. The brigadier general stopped in front of us, his hard eyes on me. It's done. I regarded him with apprehension. He didn't seem to be the black-eyed monstrosity I'd fruitlessly fought high above. But he was still the man that had brutally tortured and shot his own men to achieve his goals. Okay, she replied before looking at me. Khan, you're going to need to bring that book with us. Book? You didn't pick it up when I passed out? She pointed. I looked down at my hand, which was firmly gripping the book. What in the hell? Have I had this the whole time? It's a curious device, isn't it? You can't get rid of it, even if you try. All you can do is give it to someone else. How did you guys solve the portal damage problem? Huh? What portal damage problem? She paused, thinking before asking a different question. Does Thomas close the portal after each time he travels? I nodded. That must be it. Give space a chance to heal or something. She shook off the concern. Had that been a problem at some point? I had no way of knowing. I frowned too after realizing the intent of something else she'd said. I have to bring it with us? Where are we going? The Brigadier General, hearing my question, held out my chip and pressed something that protruded from it. Almost immediately a cyclone of violet and white roared to life around us. Pulled forward, I stumbled onto hard metal, clutching for dear life as the spinning platform slowed. A half a dozen firearms erupted above me, backed by purposeful shouts. As the uniformed soldiers took us into custody, I looked over in confused askance and Christina mouthed a silent apology to me. They pushed the sword ahead, and then her after, and I was escorted carefully behind in a begrudging acknowledgement of my extensive injuries. Out of one prison, into another. This one far more traditional. They threw me in and the gate clanged shut with an echoing note of finality. The brigadier general was in the cell next to mine, and Christina had been placed opposite of me. Come on, I whispered. He can kick his way out of here, I've seen it. She shook her head. What about those bitey things on my back? I asked, pained and confused. The old woman said they could eat metal. What if I... She shook her head again. Khan, we need to be here. What? I stared. You turned yourselves in? Yes. Why? Everyone is waiting for you just outside the inner shield. She took a deep breath and looked at the floor. We're here, Khan, because I have done... things. Things that I'm not proud of, and my soul can't take it anymore. I came here for help with the crushing fist, but then I realized what was going on. I can't let these people die. She tipped her head up briefly. Take a look out your window. Climbing up on the bunk in my cell, I put my face to the bars. A hot wind whistled past and the day was bright. I recalled my walk with Noah and Larry through the military compound on the way to Tescoy. An unknown number of days later, the oppressive heat and bitterly dry winds had grown worse. It's not just an unseasonable heat wave. No, she confirmed quietly. What's going to happen? It won't be pretty, she responded, her light brown eyes grim. 
my heart full of unidentifiable emotions. I watched those eyes as she spoke. There had been a time when they'd been full of laughter, warmth, and love. But I supposed I had once been a reliable and steadfast man, too. Life had broken us. I don't have enough information to say for sure how it'll happen, she continued. But there's an absolute tremendous amount of force bearing down on the outer shield. It translates down through the branches, usually being distributed out until it's no longer a problem. But the force just keeps rising. That's what Danny said, I told her. We're literally being crushed. Yeah. She bit her lip briefly as she thought. There are gigantic machines somewhere on the first world, and on several branch worlds, that have kept the system running for a very long time. Bigger, more powerful, more complex than anything you and I know. But they're still just machines. And there will be a breaking point. She looked up at the window above my head again. That heat. They're working overtime, I realized. Exactly. She moved out of her bunk and sat down. The machines are designed well. They won't explode or anything like that. They'll just fail first, and the incalculable forces growing on the shield will erupt through like a brutal spear. The inner shield is just acting as a focal point for all the pressure, making it worse. The true depth of what she was saying hit me then. The first world isn't safe. No, they'll all die in a rather horrible and unique manner as far as I can guess. I understood. Is that why we're here? Yes, she glanced over at the Brigadier General. For the trial of the decade, he's going on the witness stand for the first time this week. They've had a parade of soldiers, politicians, and patsies building a narrative against him. But he will be given the chance to speak for himself. And when he does... The man in question finally interjected. The whole world will be watching live. They can't silence you or hide the truth. I saw his hand curl around one of the bars of his cell. Exactly. The first world will know that we must stand together. Shake off the insipid apathy that has so plagued the human race and fight as one or we will all die. The poor will die outside our golden walls, but we will die inside them. There is no difference, save spite. I had to give him one thing. He was an eloquent monster. He had said just before a fight that he was simply doing what must be done. I'd had no idea he meant working towards something important like this. Could I actually work with this brutal thug? As if on cue, a fourth prisoner was abruptly brought in. Vast, I called watching him get thrown in the cell opposite the sword. He was covered in soot and his orange jumpsuit from Tescoy was slashed and burned. But he was alive. What do you know? He laughed bitterly. Broke out of one prison just to jump into another. He stared across the way. And I'm in full view of a man I've sworn to kill. The sword said nothing. Christina looked at me. I stood close to my bars. Vass, we can't. We need him. He's going on trial on global live television, and he's going to tell everyone what's really going on. It might just be the turnaround we need. The younger man listened, processed, and then began pacing angrily in his cell, but he made no further instigations. That was it, then, for our conversation. All we could do was wait, and listen to the imperceptibly rising howl of the hot winds outside. More than anything, those furious winds felt like a sadistic clock each new surge ticking away the sounds we had left until the end. To be continued. More of Matt's work can be found at mattdemersky.com. More of Raphael's work can be found at Short Scary Stories Narrations on YouTube.